Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Y'all, I'm a nerd. I like that guy. Um, you may not know this about, about me, but I'm actually kind of a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I don't know why. I, I like the short stories. The novels are okay, but I like sort of the, the short stories that I can read them quickly in one setting. It's just a good way to kind of decompress and just be, be thinking about kind of what's happening and guessing at the scenario, that sort of thing. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is famous for the Sherlock Holmes stories, but he also tells another short story that is helpful in introducing this passage and this concept that Jesus is going to address with us. He tells a story about one day he decided to play a joke on 12 of his closest friends. And so he sent an anonymous telegram to each of these 12 friends. And it said simply these two sentences, run at once, all has been discovered. And then he would always tell the story that all 12 of his close friends were out of the country within 24 hours. Zero explanation of what they were actually hoping would remain hidden, what was actually discovered, but in their guilty consciences, they all just ran in response to an anonymous telegram. Now, actually, that story is likely not true, but he used to tell it often to make a point about human nature, to say that when all of us are exposed with something, and somebody just walks up to you and says, hey, I know what you did, you're going to stop for a second and be like, I don't think I did anything, but maybe I did, because I know I'm not perfect, so maybe there is something I'm hiding. For me, it comes out when I'm driving carefully, cautiously, as a law-abiding citizen, and then I pass by a police officer, and I just instinctively press the brakes. Why? Because I'm so used to doing the wrong thing. Or every time I'm with my wife, and she elbows, or she points out and says, hey, there's a police officer. She just assumes, without knowing how fast I'm going, she just assumes that I'm always doing the wrong thing, and I need to know there's a police officer. I'm sure I'm not the only one that um, the, the conscience can, can weigh us down with guilt. And sometimes even when we're not doing something wrong, you think, well, I have done plenty of things wrong. There are, certain, there are certainly hidden things that I don't want people to know. And so if you're exposed with something, you think, well, yeah, no. If you know something about me that I don't want you to know, it's probably true. Because there's lots of things that have gone in here, lots of things that have gone on in here that I don't want people to know about. That's what Jesus is exposing here in Luke chapter 12. The secrecy. He's, a, a, he's exposing our assumptions of what life is like, of what it means to follow him, of the way the world works. And in exposing our assumptions, he's going to show us what it really means to follow him. So four assumptions for this morning, and then we'll go through them. I'll give them to you first. The secrecy assumption, that what is said in secret will remain in secret. The fear assumption, that we need fear the things that we can see more than the things that are unseen. The speech assumption, that if you don't know the answer, if you don't know what to say in response to a question about God, the right thing to do is to just remain silent. And then the bigger barns assumption. And we'll get to all of those, but first we'll start in Luke 12, 1 through 3, the secrecy assumption. So in, in the meantime, actually I'll, I'll back up and read the last couple of verses of, of chapter 11 so we understand what in the meantime means. Uh, Jesus was leaving a place and we read this last week, but in verse 53, as he went from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. 
Okay, so that's the setting. That's the background. He's just made some controversial statements to lots of, in public, in the presence of lots of people. He has pronounced woe upon the Pharisees and the scribes, saying, you guys are going to be judged for your sinfulness. And so from that point on, they're looking to trap him in his words somehow. And so in 12.1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say this to his disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus is certainly not afraid of the Pharisees. They are looking to trap him, and he keeps, he keeps talking bad about them. He keeps exposing their sin, exposing their unrighteousness, exposing their hypocrisy. But in this setting, there are thousands of people gathered around Jesus, and he's going to say some very uncomfortable things to a lot of people. And when scripture says thousands of people are gathered around, I need you to know that the town that Jesus spent the most of his time is Capernaum. And there were likely only a few thousand people that lived there in this first century. And then all the, rem- all the towns surrounding it were not really that big either. And so when there's thousands of people gathered, when, when Jesus is feeding 5,000 men plus women and children also, when thousands are gathered together so that people are getting trampled on the, on the ground, this is like more than a whole city coming out to hear him. This is like three different cities, all of the population of those three cities just dropping everything to see what Jesus is going to do next. He was the celebrity of all celebrities. He was more famous than anyone in his day in that region because of what he said and what he did. Because he fed people with fish and loaves. He, he worked miracles. He healed people. He made blind men see. He cast demons out of people. He made lame men walk. And he confronted the leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so this is a big scene. There's lots of people around. And he says, beware of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What's Jesus communicating to us here? Well, we know that last week, if you were here, as we talked about Luke chapter 11, he said the Pharisees were like unmarked graves. And unmarked graves meant that somebody would walk across them and be contaminated by the dead body, according to the Mosaic law, be ritually impure in, in terms of impure in terms of the Mosaic law, and then not even know of their impurity. Because the Mosaic law says stay away from dead bodies. And so to be an unmarked grave is to say you are spreading the disease of your unrighteousness without even knowing it. And people are being exposed to your unrighteousness and then they're spreading it to others and they're spreading it to others. And he is saying the same thing with the yeast here. Because yeast is a tiny little ingredient that comes and it changes the the chemical structure of the entirety of the dough. And, and the dough starts to change and expand in reaction to just a little bit of yeast. And what he says is that this disease of unrighteousness that the Pharisees have is so corrupting that it spreads. It spreads throughout the whole community like yeast spreads throughout the whole dough to change it, to make it something different than what it was before. It's corruption. And so this hypocrisy is an unseen sin. 
Because you don't know a hypocrite, a hypocrite until you really get to know them. Because hypocrites always say the right thing. Hypocrisy is a sin in which you are actively doing something in contrary to what you're saying should be done. You're telling the crowd, this is what you should do, while in your heart, in your mind, and behind the scenes, in your secret room, you're doing something different. How did Jesus expose that with the Pharisees? Again, going back to what he said last night, he ex- or last week, he said that in regard to their money. He said that in regard to their tithe. Because he, he was talking about them cutting off leaves of mint and dill and bringing it to the temple as an offering. He said, you're tithing your herbs from your garden. And meanwhile, you're ignoring the poor. You're ignoring the need around you. You should do both. He said, it's not a problem that you're giving 10% of what you receive over to God. The problem is what you're doing with the other 90 reveals the decay of your heart. And so this is the challenge that Jesus is making. You look good on the outside because you give your 10%, because you follow the outward law, but inwardly you're decaying. Again, last week he said, you're like a cup that is clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. That's still a dirty cup. So hypocrisy here is the presenting sin, but the assumption is that what is said in secret will remain secret. What is thought in secret will remain secret. Modern day vernacular, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. None of that's true in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is exposing here is to the Pharisees, I know what you guys have been saying behind closed doors. I know the gossip. I know the slander. I know the blasphemy. I know the greed. I know where your hearts are. And one day, your hypocrisy is going to be displayed. Now, for us, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus. I believe my sins have been taken away. So are my secret sins going to be exposed in the same way? This is, this is the concept I want you guys to have in your mind as we're going through this passage. I do believe what Jesus says is that in that secret sins, even secret sins of believers will eventually be displayed. And, and in some sense, that, mean, that might mean that your sin will find you out in the sense that you might think something's a secret sin until it gets out in the open. And some, some message that you sent to somebody, how often in today's day and age does an old email get thrown back on somebody? Uh, an, old, an old text message get thrown back on somebody? An old letter where you pull up something that somebody said 20-some years ago and you use it against somebody in power or influence. That happens, certainly. But more than that, for the believer, we need to remember that at the last day, at, at the judgment seat, the, the sins of the heart will be exposed as, along with the sins of action. That, that we will be reminded of the deeds that we have done in the body in rejection to God in denial of God's kingship, in denial of God's authority over our lives. But as those sins are revealed at the judgment seat, for those that are not in Christ, they will then be swept away into punishment in hell. And that's what Jesus clearly says here in verse 6. But for those that are in Christ, Jesus stands as an advocate. Jesus speaks up for them in the presence of the angels, as he's about to say later in this passage as well. Jesus speaks on behalf of those that have sinned but have come to him for grace in salvation. And so uh, you should know that your secret sin will one day be exposed and then it will, will be washed by the blood of Christ if you are in him. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, we desperately need to be 
in him. There's no secret thought. There's no secret action. There's no secret word that is not going to be exposed. Think about, we all have this problem. We all, at one point or another, have said something about somebody that we don't want them to know. At some point, you said something about a friend, a family member, a coworker, a brother and sister from church, and you don't want them to know what you said. And you're talking to this person about this person, and when this person walks in, boy, how embarrassed would you be if they knew what you were saying? Think about how it might affect our relationships if everything we said about everybody in our lives suddenly became public and broadcasted. We know, we know we all have that temptation. We know we all do it. Parents, think about how it might affect your relationship with your children if your children knew everything you've ever said about them, even in your frustration. How might it affect marriages if suddenly marriages knew everything that was ever said about them behind closed doors? We all are prone towards gossip. We're, we're all prone towards slander. If somebody offends us, somebody upsets us, we have this temptation, this inclination to make them look bad. And even if we don't broadcast it, even if we do it quietly, if we can change the opinion of one person about somebody that we don't like to get them on our side in the midst of a debate, it's a, it's a temptation we face. And so those are secret sins of our mouths, but also secret sins of the mind are in, uh, are in play here also. Secret sexual sin, the sin of pornography, the sin of lust, the, the sin of not just sexual secret sins of the mind, but the sin of jealousy and covetousness and envy. All of those are a part of what Jesus is talking about here. So hypocrisy functions on this principle of corruption, that a little bit of hypocrisy spreads and it corrupts the whole dough. And so for us, we need to be mindful of the fact that a little bit of secret sin can cause a lot of spread and a lot of rot. A lot of disease and rot in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. And so how do we treat secret sin? We bring it out into the light. That's what Jesus said. In response, in, 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 a, in a way of combating the secret sin of the Pharisees, Jesus told us, last week in Luke 11, to let your light shine. Let your eyes receive the light so that your life can shine the light. Christians are to live in transparency, to live on display, or to live in confession. No, 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 give me, understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying we all confess everything openly to everybody. I'm not saying that we all come up here and confess every secret sin, every sin of the heart, every sin of the mind publicly in the church. But what I am saying is that Christians need not hide their sins. Somebody needs to know what you're struggling with. Somebody needs to know what you've done. Somebody needs to know the sin of the heart and the mind that you have hidden. Or else that rotting inside will continue to spread and continue to affect your relationship with Christ and your relationship with others. And it won't take long for you to become the hypocrite like the Pharisee, where you say one thing and you do another. Because as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, outward sins are important, sure. But every outward sin has an inward component. And it's not just about adultery, it's about lust. It's not just about murder, it's about anger. 
anger and lust are sins too, as are greed, as are jealousy, all sorts of inclinations of the heart, sins of the heart and the mind that can cause the disease of, of sin to spread throughout us. So no, everything that is secret will come to light in one way or another. So the first assumption is the secrecy assumption that leads us to hypocrisy. The second assumption and the, and the cure, the cure is confession. The cure is living your life in the light. The second assumption is the fear assumption, which leads us to the fear of man. The fear assumption says, I need to fear what I can see. I need to be cautious and careful of the people around me and what they think of me and what they can do to me. Verse 4 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value. You are of more value than sparrows. So there's actually a couple of fears and a couple of fear nots in here. So we're not supposed to fear men. We're not supposed to fear people who can think ill of us, who can do bad things to us, who can actually physically kill us. He's, he's real about that. We're not to fear those human beings. We're to fear God who punishes sinners with eternal hell. And, and, but also, we're to fear not. And so then, what, what is he saying when he says, first, fear the Lord? Proverbs 1 says, seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Jesus is telling us, fear God who punishes sinners in hell. But also, y'all, he knows about the sparrows. He counts the hairs on your head, so do not fear. Fear, but do not fear. What is Jesus trying to get across to us in this? We need to understand the biblical view of fear of the Lord. That to fear the Lord is to have this awesome sense of awe and reverence this healthy respect for his holiness and transcendence. This realization that he is different from us. He is not like us. He's not just a better version of ourselves. He's not just a more righteous version of ourselves. He's different. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. And he is all good, om omni-good. But in all of that, in all of that, we recognize that to stand in his presence is impossible for the sinner. To stand before him as righteous is only accomplished through his work and not our obedience, not our works. And so that leaves us in this place of awe. It leaves us in this healthy reverence. Why is that word so hard? It leads us to a humble level of respect of this, our one true king. So following Jesus is about more than just good feelings. Good feelings are important. I'm, I'm, I'm supportive of good feelings about Jesus. We should love God. We should feel loved by God. But love of God is, is right when it is balanced with the, the incredible holiness of his nature. We, we don't just have good feelings about this God that is super easy and, and loving and gracious. We have, we have awe-filled joy, love, hope, and peace because this God who is holy and punishes sinners with eternal punishment has actually sought 
to make a way for us to be in relationship with him, has actually forgiven our sins by pouring out judgment on his son, by pouring out his, the, the sin of all humanity onto his son so that the, our punishment might be taken away. When we recognize that, we don't just have good feelings towards God. We have this humble, awe-inspired, reverent, gratefulness, love, and respect for him. And so don't obsess over what other people think of you, even though we all do. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of you out there really actively does not care what other people think about you, but that's not true of me. I think about constantly what other people are thinking about me, how I'm coming across. Am I clear in what I'm saying? Am I upsetting somebody? Am I confusing somebody? All of those things. I want you to learn from me what the Word of God says. I also, frankly, I'll be honest, I kind of want you to like me. I'm not the most likable guy, and I know that, because I'm kind of quiet and not super outgoing. But I think about that. I think about, I want people to like me. I have a little bit of the fear of man on display, even in that. That I don't want to just offend people. I don't want to make people upset. I don't want people to not like me. But in all of this, the challenge for me, the challenge for us, is where is the proper fear placed in men who, yeah, they can think ill of you. They can say bad things about you. They can do bad things to you. They can physically and emotionally harm you. Men can do that. But God, God has the authority to punish sinners. And so therefore, we should be living out of a desire to please God rather than men. Jesus said, we read it a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees, their motivating desire was to please men more than it was to please God. They wanted to appear righteous before men rather than appearing or rather than being actually righteous before God. That's what hypocrisy is. So the second assumption is the fear assumption and it leads to the fear of man. And the right, the the solution, the cure for it is awe-filled reverence of God. Uh, Verse eight, the speech assumption. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. And so here's what's going on here. Um, Jesus is actually talking about what I just referenced He's talking about the judgment seat in which we will be shown all of our deeds done in the body of sin and righteousness. And either Jesus will speak up on our behalf as our advocate or he won't. And if we deny him here in this life, then he will say, depart from me, I never knew you at the end of days. But if we speak for him, if we live as his ambassadors, If we represent him to others, if we acknowledge him, is the word that Jesus uses here, if we acknowledge him in the presence of others, then he will acknowledge us in the presence of the Holy Father. And so here's the false assumption I see here. The false assumption comes in verse 11, when when you're asked to give an account to human authorities. That's what verse 11 is all about. What happens when the synagogue leaders question you? What happens when the governmental leaders question you? What happens when the crowds question you? 
You don't know what to say. What do you do then? The false assumption that Jesus is combating is that if I don't know what to say, it's okay to just keep quiet and not acknowledge that I'm a follower of God. That's why the answer is in verse 12 here. Just speak, and the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. Meaning, as you're speaking, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you and speak for you. The false assumption is that if somebody asks you to give an account, to give a reason for the hope of Jesus Christ that's in you, and you feel like, well, I, I'm not sure I have all of the answers. I'm not sure I have all of the right apologetic answers and explanations of the origin of the universe and explanations of how the days of creation played out and, and how the Bible was translated over thousands of years in ancient languages to get into the modern translation. I can't answer all those questions, so I'm just going to be quiet. What, what Jesus is saying here is, no, when you're given the opportunity to speak, take it. Whether you have the answers or not, because you have some answers, if you believe in Jesus, you know something about him, right? You have, when Paul was, was in Athens, Paul walked into Athens, into what they call the Areopagus or Marsil, and he debated, and he used his education into the Hebrew Old Testament and his education into modern philosophy to share with them, to contextualize the message with the modern philosophers of the day so that he could show them how Jesus would be received as God. That's incredible. That's great. Paul also wrote to the church to say, I chose when I was with you to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And so the same guy that can debate the wisest people of his day can also say to the humble people, you know what really matters? Jesus, and that he died, and he rose again, and that we've received the benefit of that. And, and, and so at one moment, he's saying, some of us need to debate the high-level issues and controversies of our day. And all of us need to be able to just say, I believe that Jesus died for me and he rose again and I've received the benefit through life eternal and through a hope that anchors me when I don't have the answers to those questions. Through a joy that is so much deeper than all of the doubts or questions I might have in the midst of a really incredibly complex world full of debate and questions. So, so hear me. We need people that are gonna go into the Areopagus like Paul did and debate the most complex issues of the day. We need some people to do that. We need everybody to speak up on behalf of Christ and him crucified, him crucified for you. And so the assumption here is if you don't have the answer to a complex question, you just stay quiet, you leave it alone, and you pray for a super Christian to come in and answer the question. You pray that, that someday, I think we've all had this temptation at some point. You've been in a conversation with somebody and they ask a question about faith, about God, about culture, about whatever, and you think, well, I don't really have the answer. And so you keep your mouth shut and then you go and you pray, and you're like, God, send somebody that does have the answer. But don't send me, because I don't know the answer to that question. And the reality of it is, some of us, yeah, some of us need to be those Christians that, that have the answers to the complex questions. But all of us need to live in such a way that we're representing and we're acknowledging God. And even if you don't have the answer, speak of the God who has loved you. Speak of the Son who has died for you. Now, there's another concern with what I'm saying here because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, actually, the problem with society is not people not speaking and keeping their mouth shut when they don't have answers. The problem with society today is that everybody knows everything. 
that everybody is an expert on every little issue of the day. And some of us maybe need a little dose of humility and not speaking up as experts on everything. Well, in, based on different personalities, you can take the application different directions here. For some of us, you need to be able to say, I, I, I don't have all of the answers. I don't have all of the answers, but I'm going to tell you what I do know. And some of us, we need to say, you know what? I have some answers, I have some opinions, I have some perspectives, but I really need to listen. I really need to hear this person out. I really need to learn and walk in humility. We all walk as ambassadors for Christ with a balance of humility and boldness. Boldness because we need not be afraid of speaking up, but also humility in recognizing that even the answers we do have, we need not be fully certain about every answer that we have. Because sometimes we might just be sharing our opinion as if it's the gospel truth. We're bold with the gospel, and we're humble with things that, that are not the gospel. We speak on matters that, that aren't the gospel, certainly. We answer questions, we debate issues. But in it, we all could use a healthy do dose of humility. Because one of the worst things that we can do is to think that we are that super Christian that has all the answers. Because you know who's not fun to talk to? Somebody that knows everything. You know who's, who's really good at turning off lost people? Somebody that has all the answers to every question, whether you're asking the question or not. And so there's a balance. There's a balance there of being bold, not being afraid to speak, and saying, I know the ultimate answer is Jesus. But I'm not using this opportunity to talk about Jesus as an opportunity to dump everything else I know on you. And so, we walk with wisdom in those conversations, representing God well with representing Christ and Christ crucified first, representing the gospel as the answer to every societal issue, representing the gospel as the solution for any human to receive reconciliation at the cross of Christ. It is an offer for everyone. And it is an offer that we don't receive because of our education, because of our wisdom, because of our good decision-making or our righteousness. It's an offer that we receive because Christ loved us and poured out his love at the cross. And as the Spirit renews us, it's not because of the works that we've done. It's because of God's grace. We give God the authority in that. The fourth assumption here is, so the first is the... Um, the first is the secrecy assumption for which the answer is hypocrisy. The second is the fear assumption for which the answer is fear God, not men. The third is the speech assumption for which the answer is to speak with boldness but also humility. And then the last assumption here is the bigger Barnes assumption. And I'll restate something I said last week. I don't exactly like talking about money, but Jesus does it a lot. And every time Jesus talks about money, it's an avenue to cutting into the heart. He cuts into the hearts of human beings by talking about the way they manage their physical resources, the way they manage their physical treasure in this earth, the way they live in response to what God has given us. So verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So now Jesus is this well-respected teacher of the day. Like I said, he's the celebrity of all celebrities. So this guy is having this this debate with his brother, and he says, Jesus, will you solve this disagreement for us? And Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. Small barns can't hold the grain? Okay, I don't need small barns anymore. I need big barns. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And, and here is the motivation here in, chapter nine, or in verse 19. And then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The assumption here is what's mine is mine. I've worked for it. I've earned it. I'm the one that has achieved what I have received. And the result is treasuring a gift as if it belongs to you, as if you've earned and received it. But really, the answer for this, as is the answer for each of these assumptions, is the gospel. It is a right understanding of the message of salvation through Jesus. Because what does the gospel say? That God so loved, he gave. He generously gave so that we might have life. And beyond that, we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything we receive is given by God. As I said about the Pharisees last week, the problem was not in the way they tithed the 10% to the work of God. The problem was the greed through which they, they managed the other 90. And so for us, the question is not, can you relax? You know, that's the goal. That's the goal for this guy, this farmer. He just wants to retire. He just wants to get to the point of relaxation, of rest and leisure. And what Jesus is saying in confronting this guy is that he has made a false assumption that he, he gets to just live in comfort because of the gift that he's been given without sharing that gift with anyone else, without offering that gift to anyone else. It would be like me coming and bringing a birthday cake to one of my children and saying, happy birthday, this cake is for you. And then that child eating the entire birthday cake as if the whole cake is just for them. No, that cake, that gift is a gift for you to be shared with others. And so the Father, God, gives us an abundance. He gives us resources. He owns everything. And what we have is given by him. And so the question for us is, how do you treat the Lord's blessing and provision over your life? What do you do? Are you just building bigger barns, building bigger houses, buying more stuff, more cars, more whatever, so that you can achieve more comfort? more rest, more leisure. You know, do you know that God does promise us rest and God promises us leisure? And you know, it's more than the 20 or 30 years of life you get on this earth called retirement. God promises his children eternal rest, eternal comfort. But while we're here, he has work for us to do. I'm not saying you have to work your career until the day that you die. But I am saying the way we view the life and the days that we have, we should view every day as a kingdom day. 
every day as an opportunity to represent Jesus. And, and when you have great physical energy to go out and have a long day representing Jesus, you have a long day representing Jesus. And when your physical energy wanes later in life and you have short days honoring and presenting Jesus to others, then it's okay to have short days. And maybe you come to a point in your life where about the best that you can do to honor Jesus in your situation is to just pray for others and to be an intercessor on behalf of others. Praise the Lord you have that opportunity. Or maybe you get to the point where, where, you're, where all you can do to serve Christ is to serve ailing or is to serve, serve aging um, sick relatives that you love and your days are spent caring for them so that they might live in the, the greatest amount of comfort they could possibly live in this life. Praise the Lord. You get to represent Christ in that ministry to somebody that you love. The days will be hard in this life. God promises in this life you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Meaning, you're going to get to that point of rest and leisure. You'll get there. The God who has saved you will bring you into his presence, into ultimate rest and leisure. But while he's left you here, he's left you here so that you might be an ambassador, so that you might represent him well, so that you might acknowledge him before people, so you might use the resources he gives to you for the sake of building his kingdom. And it's not just about giving 10% to the church. Anytime Jesus talks about money, it's so much more than that. It's not just about how you spend the tithe. Yes, we should give a tithe to the church, to the kingdom of God. But beyond that, how we use the other 90 is more important. How do we live as stewards of what God has given us? Do we store it up for ourselves, revealing that our heart is actually in our physical treasure? Or do we use it for his kingdom? Do you know that in the early church, there were no church buildings? For the first couple of centuries of the church, the outposts of the kingdom of God were individual homes of believers. And so how are you using your home? I mean, we could talk about money. Great. How are you using your money? That's a simple application, but how are you using your home? How are you using your time? How are you using your relationship, your influence over others? How are you using your, your, your career and, and your, your life, the, the number of years that you spend in school? Are you leveraging those for the kingdom of God, making the best of that opportunity? The number of years you work in your career in your workplace, are you making the best of those to not just provide for your family, but to also live as an ambassador for the kingdom of God? All of these challenges we must address with a realization that we're, we're God's people. We're sons and daughters. And man, should we be sober in light of what God says here. He says to the man that is rich, the man that is soaking up his retirement years, the man who has built up a healthy savings, he says to him, fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you and all of these things are being left behind. And the clear application for us is, are we living to be rich towards ourselves are we living to be rich towards God? Each of these assumptions leads to sins of the heart. And hypocrisy is clearly on display through all of this. But the four assumptions. Assuming your sin can remain secret allows you to live a double life. Assuming that either the positive or negative reaction of other people is what matters most leaves you to live in fear of men rather than God. Assuming that if you don't have all the answers, you don't have to acknowledge God leads you to deny him and not speak on his behalf. And assuming 
that all you have is, is all a resort of your hard work leads you to treasure your possessions and your own hard work over the God who gives. The result of all of this is a consistently divided life, a consistently hypocritical life. You know, the world charges Christians with hypocrisy every single day. And the truth is, it's true. We're all hypocrites at one level. We all know what is right to do and often do the wrong thing because we're all still sinners. But, but the goal of the Christian life is to be pursuing righteousness in Christ and standing against that divided, double life that we are all prone to live. To actually live our lives in the light. The clear application of last week shines again this week. Live your light in the life. Or live your life in the light. Said that backwards. Whatever is going on as a secret sin on the inside, somebody needs to know. Confess it to God. Yes, come clean to another person. You know, there's a secret sin going on in the church right now. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. And for two weeks in a row, this is actually a joke. For two weeks in a row, somebody has broken into my office and filled my office with balloons. I have no idea why. But here's the deal. Every secret sin is going to be found out, so I'm making a public proclamation. I'm checking the cameras this week. Because every time there's a baby shower now, we've had baby showers two weeks in a row, and I have an office full of balloons as a result. Well, now I'm checking the cameras. So I'm putting everybody on notice that that sin needs to be confessed. But beyond that, to be more serious, whatever secret sin Whatever secret sin is being harbored in every heart and mind needs to be brought out into the light, not to everybody, but to somebody, to your spouse, to a close friend, to, to a close trusted friend, to somebody that you can trust to say, you know, I'm not doing well in this area. I need your help. I need you to walk with me. Accountability in the way we utilize our resources. The biggest application, the longest passage here is about money. Husbands, wives, families, we need to be open with our money and talking about it to make sure we're leveraging our resources for the kingdom of God. So what do we do with this? Here's how we'll close. And I'll invite the team to go ahead and make their way up. What we do with this, first we acknowledge our own sin. And in acknowledging our own sin, we don't just say it's there, we confess it and we repent of it. We repent of our secret sins that nobody else knows. Confess it to somebody. We confess of our misplaced fears and we acknowledge, you know what, sometimes I do care what other people think more than I care what God thinks. We speak up and we acknowledge Jesus before men, even if we don't know all of the answers. But some of the best ways we can acknowledge Jesus before men is to not have the answers, but to say to them, I know where to find the answers. I'll walk with you through this. You have a question about following Jesus I can't answer? I'll help you find it. Let's walk together. And demonstrating humility is a way to show others how to pursue Jesus. We acknowledge our own sin also by giving away some of our treasure. You think you have a problem with greed and covetousness? Just give some away, even when it hurts. Generosity is only displayed when, when that generosity hurts a little bit. Otherwise, you're just giving stuff you don't need and you don't want anyway. Real generosity is giving to the point that it hurts a little bit, that it creates a sacrifice for you. And let's say, Let's just say that you hear all of this and right now you're experiencing this feeling of guilt of like, man, I've got these secret sins. I've got greed. I've got lust. I've got all these problems. And all this message has done is just make me feel bad about the stuff that I know is going on in the sickness of my heart and my mind and I don't know what to do with it. The answer is simple. 
You confess it before the throne of God. You confess it in the presence of another person. And you fall into the loving arms of the Jesus who forgives. The God who saves. The offer of salvation stands for everybody. The offer of salvation that says, I don't get it right myself. But yet, I've been promised an eternity that is incredibly bright and beautiful. And that offer stands for you too. Anyone can get in on it. And so as we sing together, we're going to sing about how we live our lives in in obedience to Jesus. We're going to sing about the grace of Jesus. But as you're working out how the Spirit is going to imply in your heart and life what the Word of God has said, I'd encourage you to come, to respond how the Spirit leads. Come to the altar, pray with someone, confess your sin so that you can be rightly used by God as an ambassador for him. Because guys, we've been given an incredible mission. We get to be a part of what God is doing to unveil his power to every nation, tongue, and tribe, to build his kingdom here on this earth. You have been asked to play a part in it. But we've got to get our hearts and minds right with Christ so that we can go and represent him well to the world that needs him. Stand and sing with us. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
sing this out. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Let's do that bridge one more time. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. And I we praise you for a firm foundation. We praise you in the knowledge that you have loved us and you have saved us. And Father, if there is anyone in this room or watching online this morning that is still overwhelmed in feelings of guilt, that feels that they have fallen short and they don't know what to do next, Spirit, may you in the love of God encompass them and fill them Uh, Lead them to come and have a conversation with somebody. Asking about the way to receive salvation in you. To just simply put their faith, their trust in you. For new life. For new salvation. That a life would be reborn this morning, Father. Through the power of your spirit. And Father, may we all just walk out in awe. Knowing that your love has not failed us. Your love has sealed us. And your love is the foundation under which we build our lives. And now we walk out as a cleansed people, 
as a righteous people, saved by your grace, by the pouring out of your blood and the giving of your spirit. So Spirit, send us out in your power and in your boldness this morning. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Remain standing and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.